0: Hey, Joe.
1: Hey, how you doing?
0: What you got? Uh, I have a telephone in my hand. <laughs> <It's
1: funny laughs> Come at re- me. Come at me. It's, what you? Got? It's funny how rarely I use a telephone as uh, use this telephone as a telephone. I don't use right. it as a telephone that much anymore.
0: You mean the phone app? It's just an app. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a call, rarely used app. Yeah, you can
1: call it the phone app. Yeah. the built-in microphone on my handheld device.
0: Right. But yeah. the built-in microphone, I I'd probably use that more for transcription than I do for phone calls.
1: Yeah, I don't really do that with it, but I get I get your point. Hmm. Same mic. Is that right? because of your speech impediment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just yes. doesn't work for you? Doesn't work. <laughs> no, it's because I just don't. It's a functionality.
0: It's just. Did you, did you ever tell you the story when we were taking my.
1: Has it found its way into my
0: workflow? We were taking my son. I think it was my son, Rigel, to, for braces or something like that. You know, when, when we were being evaluated by the dentist for hmm. braces or something. Okay. And they were describing like things that, you know, that they could do and, you know, the minor things, he's fine, you know, and they, they ended up doing those things. And, and I, the way they described it to Meredith, my wife was, you know, if we do these things, he won't have the same speech impediment that you do.
1: <laughs> she's Are like, you kidding me? No, no,
0: no, no. That and, is brilliant. And, and she's thinking to herself, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, Which one would that be? You know, Meredith, right? Do you detect yeah. any speech impediment I other than not. kind of the pausing and frustration that one married to me would normally exhibit?
1: Fair point. Uh, No, I don't. And it's funny. I, if I were, I could imagine her saying, "Do you mean the impediment that prevents me from writing your check?"
0: (laughs) You would. That is the kind of thing that you would think. You might not say it, but you would definitely think and tell me about it later. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Interesting. You know. So super busy week. Now next week we're gonna do a hiatus. Yes. Because you've got a busy week. Yes. This week I've got a busy week. Yeah. We should have done hiatus this week. We should have. But I'm here. I'm. I've showed up, Joe.
1: You are you're I'm a trooper. I'm not. That's the difference between you and me. You're good, and I'm not. I'm Hopefully, a loser.
0: by by next week. Well, today's September first, which means, of course, it's the opening of the September window for law reviews.
1: Yay! Is that what they call it? Um, that is what a person who believes it exists <laughs> would call it.
0: <laughs> I'm hoping it exists. I'm I'm about to send this thing out. Mm. I'm like a couple of days from releasing this thing. Cool. And I feel like uh, tough. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Hal can Incandenza from Infinite Jest.
1: Hey, can I mention yeah. something to our listeners? We, you and I had a conversation about a little five pager that I did on the immorality of requesting oh, expedited yeah, review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Lewis and Clark Law Review uh, offered to publish that uh, a few weeks awesome. ago. So I've uh, agreed to. And now, now I'm trying to find someone to uh, publish the uh, satirical companion piece that I wrote mm-hmm. um, called A Modest Proposal. For expediting manuscript submissions at less prestigious law reviews, hmm. um, it is a and modest proposal. Um, I gathered that, yeah, and, and I've read it. Oh, right. Um, so that's fun. So, so it's have... still
0: out there. It's still out there. If if if, uh, if 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 one of the people listening to this is you know has some connection to a law review, that's an easy get,
1: I and it has a good sense of humor. Yeah. So they'll get it. Like, like to me, it's it a no brainer.
0: You just take, you just publish that piece. Don't right. think about it. Just totally. don't think about it. Just publish it, right? So
1: it's five pages, six yeah. pages.
0: M- mine is only, will be a modest 80 something pages. Nice. <laughs> that's that's a, nice and tight. So you can just slip that one in. <laughs> that's, that's like a snare drum. That's how oh tight that is. It's, it's right down the middle of, well, you've read portions of it, although, uh, you know, I cut my favorite scene at your yeah, suggestion. Yeah, sure it's changed a lot but, over time, um, but. You know, it's right down the middle of what law reviews like to publish, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely.
0: All right. I think it's time to. Give our guests a call. Yeah, this is not one of those post-show pre-rolls, is it? This
1: is a pre-show pre-roll. We don't know how this is going to go. This is a pre-pre-roll. So we do in the post-roll, pre-roll, pre-roll, post-roll. I guess so. Yeah.
0: So so we're gonna have <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're pe- we're playing with time. We're time lords. Yeah. <laughs> we we can be at any any place in time. I think now, although see, not any place in space.
0: For the listeners, it's just been a a, a a split second, but for for us, it's been an hour now. And it's I wonderful. think we were just saying that this was like a. Like we didn't know, but now we know what happened in this conversation, right? Right. And it's great. And it's, this is why we're time Lords, dude. (laughs) All right. So let's get, uh, let's pretend like we're before the call. Oh, okay. Okay. So let's get Emily Sherwin on the, on the horn here and talk about her paper.
1: Do do you mean professor Emily Sherwin from Cornell?
0: (laughs) Are you, are you trying to make a more formal introduction? No,
1: I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get there with you in the moment of introducing. Okay yeah
0: (laughs) there's this is more (laughs) (laughs) pre-roll
1: it's more post-roll pre-roll post-roll pre-roll
0: why do we keep doing this i don't
1: know now it's like post 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 pre-roll
0: so i'm leaving town in just like a couple hours so this is this is going to go live to live to tape awesome yeah so no no editing this is this is how it was this is a record of how things were and it's great (laughs) well we'll let the listeners be the judge of that
1: and they will judge it great
0: All right, so no show next week, but we have some feedback. We'll get back to in a in a, in a couple weeks. Keep it coming. Oral Argument Podcast at gmail.com. Awesome. And or hit us up on Twitter. We're Oral Argument on Twitter. Rate us on iTunes. Five stars. Right. <laughs> 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 it helps people find the show. It does. And, you know, but I think the best way, if if you do like the show, tell somebody else about the show. That's really the great. Download thing. a podcast app on their phone. Show them how podcasts work. Yeah. Then, you know, put Oral Argument
1: on there. Make their life better.
0: Yeah, this is the bottom line. Well, or or if you don't want to do that, put oral argument on there. (laughs) Uh, All right, let's go on. Emily, how are you doing? Okay. Well, we love this paper. This is going to be fun to talk about. (laughs) Okay, well, that's that's good.
2: It's a little obscure, but... uh... That's what
0: I. That is the wheelhouse of our show. That's our heartland.
1: Obscurity? <laughs> okay, <right. laughs> absolutely. Uh, so, could you could you tell us a little bit about just what 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 in uh, what occasioned the paper? What sort of inspired it?
2: Um, well, it was kind of commissioned. That's oh, okay. Often a good inspiration. Um, there was a conference <laughs> in Cambridge on uh, the merger of law and equity. Ah. And it sort of grows out of this North American common law effort uh which is expanded outside north america um and the idea is to um revisit some of the roots of the common law and figure out where they are in uh, the modern legal world um and it's got some canadians americans uh english australians um it's trying to unite the common law world to see uh if there's any worthy conversation. That's how i describe it. The Great. whole initial idea, I think, came from Henry Smith and John Goldberg.
0: Mm. So it's kind of like going back in time, like an anthropologist, and you're saying, you know...
2: Well, think- kind of. It's trying to find out what common ground there is now mm-hmm. in the Commonwealth nations. that could come up with some legal theory that is not uh, specifically economic and is not public law, but private law.
0: Right.
1: Which, of course, is what Henry seems to focus on these days—is private right. law generally. And then you, you mentioned uh, some of his papers on this, uh, on on the sort of what's left for equity to do. Um, yeah. what, and what and is his? How would you summarize his theory? What What was his take?
2: His theory, um, I would describe as um, it, he, he likes to look at equity in modern law. He's not trying to be necessarily historical about this although it's fed somewhat by history is um, that uh, equity has the function of countering opportunism, but he understands that that causes a problem for the rules of common law and their power to guide conduct. Um, So he wants to make it a second order part of the law that comes in ex post um, plays a secondary role and it works in a limited domain, which he describes as opportunism.
0: There's a tremendous amount to talk about there, including like translating that into kind of you know other terms and and right. looking at its analogs and other institutions. I think is super interesting. I think for our yeah, listeners, it's, it's it, good it,
2: stuff. I don't think it quite works, as I tell him often, yeah. because I don't think there is really such a natural kind as a second order part of law. I think you need something to cause it to be second order.
0: Well, I was just going to say for our listeners to to get there and to understand that debate that you're having, if we could just go back and just, if you could like explain to us for, for people who haven't heard of it, like there used to be different courts or different institutions, equity institutions and legal institutions. Yeah. Can we go all the way back there in order to understand your theory a little better?
2: Okay. That's the 14th century and, um,
1: a good century.
2: Yeah. A good century. Um, And the king is riding around with his little group. When I teach a class, I show some of the old Monty Python pictures (laughs) where they're tapping coconuts together. And the king (laughs) is riding around with a couple of key people. And one of them is the chancellor who keeps his state seal and starts to become a judge of disputes that people want to bring to the king. And he kind of, uh, um, well, two things happen. Um, the king starts to appoint some particular people of his surrounding group um, who are designated to do law and settle disputes. Uh, and he eventually sets, sends them back to Westminster Hall and they set up as the courts. So there's the king's bench and the uh, common pleas and so forth. Meanwhile, the chancellor is his uh, right hand man and, and holds the seal and can give special relief just through that power. And so litigants who are having trouble in the common law courts because, let's say, uh, they're poor and they're up against somebody rich or something will go to the chancellor and say, the courts aren't helping us. Can you do something for us? And he starts maybe issuing a special order against whoever the offender is, if his conscience is motivated. And these were ecclesiastic types. Mm -hmm. St. Thomas More, who lost his head. Um, But not because of this, exactly, um, (laughs) was one of them. It just became a sort of special supplement to the law courts, but it wasn't expressly recognized. The chancellor, it was just the chancellor at that time. That wasn't really a court. um, And and they had uh, a
0: contempt power from the beginning? Um,
2: no, no formal contempt power contempt. You need the sheriff and so forth. But uh, I don't know the historical details of how that came apart. But but he's a very important officer. So I suppose he could order a sheriff to do something if he wanted to.
0: So there was there was compliance, although the mechanisms may be unclear.
2: Yeah. I mean, mainly at this time, he was just saying to the litigant in the law courts, um, you know, stop doing, stop bribing jurors or whatever you're doing.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. And over the next couple centuries, this finally developed into an acknowledged court, but it tried not to compete with the law courts. The law courts were in charge of things like Property who owned what? And they dictated who had formal legal title to a piece of land, which was the critical thing to have at that time. Um, And the chancellor said he never disturbed um, what the law courts were doing. He would accept their rules and their rulings about who had title. And all he did was give personal orders against people he thought were not acting in good conscience in one way or another. Mm hmm. When the system all fully developed, um, those personal orders became came to have a significant impact because they were backed by contempt. And the primary form, at least in that time and still some today, was, well, so you go to jail um, until you obey my order. Your conscience tells you to obey my order, right. but you'll stay in jail while you're working with your conscience. <laughs> and um, As soon as you see the light, you can get out of jail. Otherwise, you can stay there until you die. Wow. They still have that power. Yeah. Um, It's used in some of the strange uh, asset protection trust cases. Um, But so it, it developed into a separate court, but it was separate. It never claimed to be able to determine who had title to a piece of property, anything of that type. And they coexisted in England until 1875, um, when there was the beginning of reform. Well, I guess <clears throat> one act that accomplished a good deal of reform. And in the U.S., it was more of a process that lasted from um, the time of the Field Code in the mid 1800s up till the federal rules recognized equity in 1934, or whenever that was. Um, and at that point. Pretty much all the states, all the federal courts had a merged system.
0: By merged system, we mean that one law court, and equity claims are in the same court. Yeah. It's one like one court wearing two hats.
2: One judge is both the law courts and the chancellor and has all the remedies available uh, that either one could use.
1: So if you want to bring a case against somebody, the difference is you can go to one courthouse, file your case at that courthouse, and the Trial court's going to handle it just using whatever tools a trial court has available instead of having to figure out first. And this could have been, I suppose, in the reform days, in the early reform days, this would be an argument in favor of making a change like this. It's like, look, this is just very confusing to everybody, makes everything more expensive. Lawyers make mistakes. Um, That hurts their clients for no good reason. Why are we doing this? Let's just give it, you know, put everyone in one building and just get them doing what is a sensible thing to do.
2: Yes, and it became, the, the system became complicated of the chancellor issuing injunctions, never enjoined the law courts from doing anything, but it would issue injunctions against parties to quit their lawsuits, and that caused a good deal of friction.
0: Were there, uh, were there injunctions or orders to do things that were impossible because of no, what the impossible. law courts commanded?
2: Well, they didn't conflict in that sense. Because all you're saying that, of course, you can prosecute your case in the law court, but we're still going to order you not to do it. And we're going to put you in jail until you decide of your own free will not to do it.
0: Yeah. And it's just I guess it's the nature of the remedies in the law courts that that you could give up on those or, you know, you could maybe even collect damages. But beca- there weren't warring injunctions uh, because the, no, because the because commandment the law was courts that, don't y-
2: give injunctions. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, almost 100 percent of people obeyed the equity court and not the law court, hmm. even though the equity court always said that the law courts were the important courts and the equity was just this uh, you know, secondary system.
0: Now, now, if this were all that that were to law and equity, these kinds of two separate systems, you know, two kinds of courts which mm-hmm. issued, you know, ca- kind of cover different fields and eventually they're merged. And they were the subject and we 'll get to it of the uh, of attack by legal realists and, and you know there 's a story there but uh, then then it would be obscure and maybe interesting to us because we 're interested in obscure things, but maybe not of like general interest in the law and and The point of your paper is that the law equity divide actually plays a, a um, an important functional role in legal systems and and kind of goes to the heart of some of the difficulties we as humans have in administering a, a legal code. And I don't know if you want to kind of talk about that in terms of, you know, directly in terms of what what you've written in, in this paper, or if you want to kind of tell the tale of, of the legal realist attack on formalism and how it exalted equity into the uh, into the law courts.
2: Well, probably what has to come first to understand my paper is the rules idea. Yeah. So okay. I think I would start there. All right. Um, you assume that there that the um traditionally the common law they didn't work by absolute rules, but there were a lot more things that looked like rules in the body of law administered by the common law courts um than in the equity courts, which tended because of their ecclesiastical ecclesiastical origins, um to, to go a little more with what's fair and just in the world. Um not, you know, to the point of ridiculous, but uh, they often would intervene on grounds that were very hard to state in a concrete rule, whereas the law courts tended to use more concrete rules. Um, you can see this, especially in the area of contracts, where, you know, there are a number of rules that tells you how to reach a valid contract and then what might happen Um if someone breaches the contract and then there were a number of more uh, amorphous equity rules that said, well, here are some things that you really shouldn't do when you're bargaining for a contract. Um, and some of these kind of drifted the law court said, OK, we'll do that. Uh, we'll take that rule that like the idea of fraud, but they would define it more exactly. And the equity would always come up with a more vague version of what it was that you couldn't do um, if you wanted to enforce your contract. Um, so that was sort of the traditional association of the two courts that the law courts would operate by rules and the equity courts would do um, the type of equity that's goes back to Aristotle, that uh, it, when their rules are general uh, equity steps in to correct the rules to do justice uh in particular
0: cases. So, did the division look pretty much like the, the kind of rules standards debate that we have? Yes, today? it looks a
2: lot like the rules standards debate. Standards yeah. were more prevalent in equity. Yeah, I mean, you can't make an absolute line, but uh, rules a little more determinate. Rules more prevalent in law standards that are indeterminate by their definition yeah and there
0: are a bunch of different dimensions around which people argue about the desirability of rules and standards you know rules give more power to promulgators standards give more power to adjudicators Uh, rules give perhaps better ex-ante expectations about what's going to happen helps you order your affairs better uh and uh standards give better May, perhaps, although this is what one of the interesting parts of your paper, maybe better expose justice in individual cases, but but you, you complicate that in interesting ways in the paper. And so that, that's, you know, and there, there, there are other ways that people kind of distinguish rules and standards and show the strengths of each, and, and even, you know, H.L.A. Hart wrote about the fact that, like, we just can't govern uh, by rules alone. Uh, you know, we can't specify everything, you know, he says. That yeah, all he language
2: being, eventually yeah. uh, runs out. On the <laughs> other hand, he believed and a number of people believe that there is a core of language right. that will make sense to most people and could actually tell them what it is they're supposed to do without their having to ex- exercise a lot of judgment about what it is.
0: And did they, did, did any it, it, like struggles between law and equity early on, but when they were separate courts, it, to the extent there was a debate about who should do what or or how far equity should go – did those debates track kind of the modern rules standards debate i mean no they, i would yeah. i would
2: say not at all that uh i mean the equity was was seen as giving special relief but the, at the time that that was all developing um the problem in the common law was not so much that there were substantive rules of conduct, but that there were um, all of these very complicated procedure right. procedures you had to go through. And equity would mostly give some relief against those when there was some just reason to do that. But it fell into a pattern of um, the common law. Outgrew its very onerous procedures, but did tend to be more rule-like, um, and equity retained the more um, the less rule-like uh, methods of handling problems. And it also went along with different procedures, in that equity would take uh, de- depositions, uh, interrogate people. Um, in at law, you just had a jury who listened to the witnesses and reached a decision. Um, So they had quite different procedures that tended to preserve that idea that uh, or tended to lead into that idea that in more modern times, let's say going back to the 19th century, um, you would find more rules in law and more standards in equity.
1: But it sounds like the rule standards difference is also getting played out, at least on the law side, in the procedural triggers for your lawsuit, the writ system, and and just getting your lawsuit up and running. That, yeah, that, that's true. That they had a more rule-like approach to that. And so the, right. in order to uh, alleviate that, uh, the, the over and under inclusiveness that rules seem to present on a regular basis, you can turn to the chancellor and say, you know, I'm, I might be out of court in that for this silly pleading rule, silly in my case, and I can explain why in my case, it would be silly to do that. Even if it might make sense in the run of cases, you shouldn't make me stick with that approach. Um, That is the rule standards debate, right?
2: Yeah, though that is at a, it it did play out a little differently and a little differently in time on the procedural side. um, By, by the, the, mid-19th century, the chancellor's procedures had become actually very rigid. Oh, sure, uh, sure. Very complicated. There is an article by Stephen Subrin from sometime in the 80s, I think, that uh, did a very good job of um, uh, talking about the uh, uh, movement in procedure from a the legal, the common law methods to the equity methods. And he also attributed this in part to the legal realists. Um, but he wasn't concerned with the rule standards debate as so much as the technicalities of procedure. Right.
1: So, and, um, and the discovery mechanisms that you mentioned, that's, that's a clearly, from an historical point of view, that's clearly a manifestation of the experience in the equity system as opposed to the law system that what yeah. we think of as modern discovery tools, virtually all of those evolved in equity and not at law.
2: Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Uh, yeah, but for
2: that you'd want to talk to Stephen suver who's much more the expert
1: on that side of sure it. it's so it's
0: i just now in my legal theory class have completed a unit on the realists and you know kind of the students have followed this arc in the of the attack on on formalism whatever whatever you know the reality of formalism was you know brian Tamanaha as we've discussed before is right. questioned the extent to which formalism was ever formal <laughs> I guess but um how does that man so you know part of the paper is like showing how this manifests like the the realist attitude toward exposing underlying policy preferences of judges toward showing the um towards showing that in each case there was in fact choice which was being hidden by seemingly formal systems which were not in fact so determinative this 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 move like so how did that uh, yeah, part of what you say is that that essentially opened the door to bringing kind of the equity mode into law. Um, is is that a good summary or or how would you say Yeah,
2: that? yeah, that is. Um, let me still go back a little more because I think I can explain it better if I do a little bit more on the rules.
0: Yeah, that's great. Cool.
2: And then say, because the realists are anti-rule, so you have to
0: um, yes, exactly, yeah. have an
2: idea of what you're talking about with a rule here. So right. when I say oh. a rule, I'm talking about something that's fairly determinate it's supposed to be authoritative that if the rule maker could have their way everyone would follow this rule all the time Um, and I'm also assuming that they're good rules Um, there are a lot of bad rules in the world but if you get a good rule it's one that um, if if you had everybody in the world follows the rule you would get a better sum of results than you would get if everybody in the world used their best judgment about what to do in that same situation. So there'd the be, there
0: be winners and losers under the rule, but this, yes, but but this but particular overall, rule is the best you could do. Yeah, yeah.
2: You do better with a rule than what you do with judgment. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that kind of rule. Um, and there are a lot of that kinds of rules because of what you mentioned before, coordination of conduct. Often your biggest problem in deciding what to do is that you don't know what the other person's going to do. Mm-hmm. You have a pretty firm rule. You begin to have an idea of what the, what the other person is likely to do, and that makes a tremendous advance, ex- especially in legal matters, for you know how good your outcome is going to be. Can, can, um, I so- a,
1: can I ask a quick question? W- yeah. w- just to make sure I understand this um, uh, and just and I'll say up front, I'm I'm actually skeptical about how many of these there are good rules, um, uh-huh. but, but um, uh, which you point out in the paper is something a lot of many people have expressed skepticism about. But it is is would a good would an example of a good rule be a rule that says, you know, in this country, you drive on X side of the road.
2: Yes, that's a very good rule.
1: <laughs> because uh, that's a
2: rule that's hard to argue with.
1: And you need a you need coordination. Uh, right. Getting people to just make a good judgment about what it would be, which side of the road it would be safe to drive on in this circumstance will probably lead to all kinds of chaos. Uh, and although lot, it will make some people worse off every now and again, that it was this way rather than that way, just say what it is, and everyone should follow it.
2: Right. Um, exactly. Somebody who stumbles in from England is going to have a problem, but overall, it's <laughs> much better if you're trying to decide which side of the road to be on, if you know everybody else is going to be coming at you on the other side, because yeah. there's a rule. And, so that's, and also, I actually yeah. think that some of the rules of contract law, transactional law, um, operate that way. And some of the rules of property law operate that way. Here's a border and this is what it means. And we can avoid a lot of trouble if we know that in advance. Um, So if you assume, all I need is for you to assume there's some rules like that. Um, Now, all of those rules, they're blunt because they're determinate. Um, They're going to cover unpredicted facts, and they're going to be overbroad. So they're going to have some bad outcomes. But by my assumption, they're going to have fewer bad outcomes um, than just plain judgment. Mm -hmm. And you're also going to have the problem that judgment is going to tend to be biased against following the rule just because of human psychology, salient facts of the situation you're in right now are going to be more important to you intuitively than what you might be doing to the background of you know sensible, coordinated life out there if you start to publicly visibly violate the rule
0: um, and, and, so, and you mean you mean biased in situations in which the rule is implicated in other words where you're asked to kind of cogitate on whether to follow the rule when it looks like yeah, it, you may I'm be better
2: that, not to just yes yeah a, a heuristic bias not right you know like racial prejudice or something yeah, yeah. so let, let me bias. just
1: let me just pause it then one so 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 if you to use the driving on the right-hand side of the road in the United States. So Mm -hmm. so if you – it it is a good rule on your definition. I can see that. Um, Let's uh, posit that there is a big group of sheep, and they are blocking the right-hand side of the road uh, and not the left-hand side of the road. And I come upon this this, uh, event, uh, and I decide to drive for 30 feet, on the left-hand side of the road, after which a policeman promptly pulls me over and starts writing me a ticket. Right, and I say, "Officer, um, here's the, <laughs> here's the thing. Do you not see the sheep? Uh, it, it it might say that that might be the rule, um, but surely it doesn't apply in a situation like this, uh, where there were no other vehicles around. Uh, posit good weather." uh, posit clear visibility in the line of sight that there are no other cars coming. So I'm not creating a hazard of any kind. I'm simply trying to get around the sheet. The,
0: the idea here, like, like Raz's conception of authority, right. Is that the rule, right. you know, the, the rule itself replaces all reasons you might have, like your right. personal reasons go away. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and that
1: is yep. why the, and the police officer, as he continues to write the ticket says, uh, yes. Uh, Please read Raz <laughs> yeah. um, and or, completes writing the ticket, or, now, or, or move
0: to Joe Land and have your own rules. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> um, so, you know, what should a court? If I go to court later and complain uh, this that I shouldn't have to pay this ticket, um, you know, th- walk us through the the way that I should be thinking about this if I'm trying to think uh, in a, in an effective way, given everything that's at stake. Because, it actually, this this actual scenario to me actually contains a lot of very deep and complex issues.
2: Yeah. um, uh, I mean, I don't want to start absolutely from scratch with the rules, but (laughs) if we go back to your sheep, you know, I assume because this is a good rule um, that it was coupled with something that said something about double yellow lines and, uh, you know, single uh, dashes and that the double yellow lines were there for a reason that there's not really enough space despite what you might think for you to get around a car right right but you were impatient you could have stopped and honked at those sheep but you decided just <laughs> to say it's not going to happen this time so you went around the sheep but it could have happened And if we ran that hundred times mm. there would have been too many wrecks got it if it's not a good rule we want to change the rule but if it is a good rule then if we ran your scene a certain number of times, we'd find that there were more, uh, you know, at least if we sum up the errors, assuming that, you know, even wind rack would be a horrible, horrible error, um, that uh, we kind of want to keep – have you follow this rule.
0: Yeah, but there's, there's – Joe's point, I think, is a little bit more critical, uh, and, and that is that – posit that the rule is a good rule in the sense that if you had a rule saying that, you know, driving on the right side of the road when there's a double yellow line – is is generally obligatory unless there are exceptional circumstances and we leave it vague as to what's exceptional. Like, that, that's a worse rule than the one which says it is obligatory. You cannot right. pass, right? Be- it, let's, because- we posit that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we couldn't do better if we didn't have a mechanism to recognize the exceptional situation and remove us from the rule. It's just that we can't make a, we can't make a rule that does any better, but we would do better if we could find like in Joe's case, if we knew for well, sure that that's the, the
1: question, I right,
0: that, that is the question. And so as I understand it, the equity solution is to find exceptional cases and not pollute the rule, partly by hiding, you say, acoustic separation in the paper. We don't have to go all the way there right now, but but the idea is maybe there's a way to do better without affecting the rule. In the same way, you remember the, uh, um, uh, uh, the Fuller, um, Spelunkian explorers, right? There's the guy who wants to uh, uh, follow the rule but then hope the executive does something different, right? So the rule stays the same even, even though the actual effect of the law is quite different. Yeah. Um, so I can imagine a rule which is you can't improve on in the sense that if we change the rule at all, we would get worse results. And yet if we, we could somehow recognize the truly bad outcomes because no rule has no bad outcomes and right. then change them without affecting the rule, we would be better off.
2: Yeah. So if you've got your very pregnant wife in the car with you and bad things are going to happen if you don't go around the sheep and your chance is 1 in 100 that you're going to have that wreck that we really don't want you to have. Uh, um maybe then we would want to judge. Now, it doesn't it happens that there's just not really many <laughs> equitable doctrines that would help you right there but uh um no but because... it's, sim-
0: it's similar to the one that you it's similar to the case you mentioned which is to me an unusual equity, equity case it's the one where specific performance to buy the house uh would normally be ordered right. but the woman had had these terrible things happen none of which right. you know is a recognized equitable doctrine necessarily but it was uh what was it her husband went to jail and she had cancer and I don't remember the whole, but she it was a terrible She a
2: bone cancer had her leg amputated and she meanwhile had two uh, new babies along with her third baby. So she was a young one-legged mother with three babies and a husband in
0: jail. Yeah, I see. um, it seems like that's the kind of case where we can say, I don't care what the law is. It's not going to apply in this case. And basically, you know, so, so if you have a lot of exceptions, then, then one of the effects of the rule is that people who operate in reliance on rules will then not know how to allocate risk, like the risk a judge is going right. to do something. Yeah. That case is so exceptional you you might think that if we do something different, no risks will be allocated any differently in the future because it's so yeah. exceptional, right? I mean,
2: every time you nudge the barrier, though, you're going to erode that rule just a little bit. So this is just the problem of rules. There's yeah. always this gap. There's always going to be a gap between what would be, you know, sort of actuarially the best thing to do as our rule and what you know, is or you think is, in this case, the best thing to do. And as long as there's that gap, um, then there's a lot of pressure, uh, right or wrong, for equity to step in. But then as soon as equity steps in, the rule is just going to erode a little bit each time. Um, So what I was proposing in this paper is that as this great, you know, practically, let's say, Six to seven hundred year historical accident played out. There was just embedded in law um, the system of equity that was not just willing to give relief in those special situations, but was kind of hidden. Um, So people who might, if it were completely open, say, oh, well, obviously they don't really enforce the rules just aren't going to notice. And why would they not? Because um, what equity did was kind of buried behind a whole series of sort of increasingly obscure um, features of law. The fact that we have um, law and equity, the fact that we're in the area of remedies, um, because often, for instance, in contract, and that's one of my running examples, we're talking about, Um, special remedies. You've got a choice between damages and specific performance, and they may be governed by some slightly different rules. So we're talking about remedies. We're talking about the specifically equitable remedy. And people may not understand specific performance quite as easily, intuitively, as they understand damages, uh, pay for it. Um, And then we're talking about what developed um, a, a specific set of special defenses that applied only to the specific performance remedy and not to the legal remedy now you just have to trust me on that that's true mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh so that had developed and then you have to further understand you know the context of the case which makes a um equity remedy sp- particularly important uh for the plaintiff And the damage remedy may be deficient. So if you add up all of those, you would get this situation in which equity would come in and do something that was against the rules. But it would be so far buried behind layers and layers of legal arcinity that um, it might not really be noticed. So my my proposal was that um, I think that was kind of something useful about the system. Um, you could get some of the justice you want without all of the damage to the rules that you would get if it was fully public. Um, so, so, your
0: your argument is that the very candor that the realists tried to right. expose, right? The, the whole criticism is, you know, citizens, you don't understand. What the wealthy and powerful are doing in the name of rule and law, which is in fact just raw politics, right? Right. And we're going to lift. We're going to lift the veil, and you're going to see. In in fact, it, it, the true candor of the situation. So, realist judges are going to tell you really why they're doing things. And right. what you're it, saying it, is that candor ha- is a double edged sword. There were some right. values to uh, to rigid rules, which in fact did not always apply.
2: Yeah, I mean the, the realists did a number of things to destroy this little accident that I've just described. <laughs> mm-hmm. They um you know one of their major tenets was um that law really isn't the rules the courts don't follow the rules um the rules are actually incapable of really governing decisions they are, you can always find a uh, directly opposite rule the language is slippery you can interpret it um so rules aren't really that effective i think they probably overdid that the realist or the realists um and uh, then they had a very strong um, um, uh, liking for candor in the law. Mm-hmm. They wanted nothing to be obscure, nothing hidden. Um, so uh, uh, what uh, Lou Allen said, covert rules are never, uh, covert tools are never reliable tools. Um, so one of the, a, a lot of the reforms that the legal realists brought about were to tie, try and strip off all this, uh, this arcane detail in the law and instead bring forth what was really going on. It's, and, inter-
0: it's interesting, isn't it? That the, the, you know, one way of looking at some of what the realists did is, is there's kind of this twin attack on uh, which in the name of judicial legitimacy, right? In order to be legitimate, we should expose what's really going on. So you can judge what we're doing, right. but also, you know, kind of with Holmes and with others, this focus on economics and empirics, we can do a better job, right? By being, yeah. you know, candid. And and it's interesting because what you're saying- are
1: not candor just for its own sake. But yeah. But to actually get better outcomes. We'll
0: get better outcomes if we actually discuss real things. And in fact, we should be investigating real things and we're not yeah. investigating real things as the Felix Cohen critique. And, and so part of what you're saying is that Sometimes being a lack of candor actually gives better results, which is actually we know that in other areas of the law, right? Sure. Where, right. Uh, you know, with privileges and, and confidential communications, where being perfectly candid about you won't get as good advice. So we know that like not exactly lying, but right. but not You're degrading the is,
1: informational inputs for sure and you're doing it with your eyes open, but for another social purpose. Yeah, We think you're going to bolster that social relationship right. and it's worth it even though it leads to less accurate fact-finding in a trial proceeding, right? I mean, that right. would be the privilege story, for example.
2: Now, you wouldn't want to live in a legal system that was engineered that way. <laughs> I mean, that would be a tremendous fraud on the public. Right. But this just fell into place over time. Um, so there it was, and you could kind of take a little advantage of it, maybe not consciously, but the, the realist was just, it, realism was geared to strip all that away. I mean, the prime example is taking equitable unconscionability which was a quite limited defense to specific performance and sticking it into the UCC as, you know, one of the key concepts of contract law uh, of the rules of contract is that if a contract is unconscionable, um, it's not enforceable. And it's hard to find a word that means less <laughs> as un- than unconscionability. So, and that was Llewellyn. That was his grand achievement. Um, I mean, the, and and the, the the you know my my sort of exit from the paper was um, everything they said has to be true. Grant Gilmore said that, uh, except maybe the part about candor. But uh, um, it, 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 everything they they said seems good, but it does. I mean one kind of specific thing you can say about it is that uh, it puts a whole lot of faith in judges to do the right thing.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Not all judges are that wise and they have the same biases that everyone else does for the facts in front of them over the background problems they're going to cause. And and the other thing, you know, it just, it it does kind of destroy this uh, naturally occurring system of, non-candor that was in place that kind of allowed you to harmonize rules with justice which is hard to do under a very open realist regime you got to pick and they pretty much picked justice but then you do lose you know unless you're convinced that there is no value in rules
1: well you may uh, uh it, one i think it's interesting um and it, to think about uh if you if you wrote the next historical chapter i think it's in, in the united states at least i think it's interesting that um what follows legal realism is uh after the uh the war period um the rise uh of legal process and in a way legal process is an effort to try to salvage um uh some of the benefits of the lack of understanding in the lay public perhaps um, that might support the strength of rules, right? It's a way to try to recapture some of that benefit uh, with a substitute in the form of craft values for judges. Right? Yeah, why don't it's, you say what that
0: is in in, in a nutshell?
1: The wh- wh- legal, legal is? process.
0: I mean, so oh, in well, what way? Yeah. I mean,
1: it's. I, I think I did just say what it is. It's the, <laughs> yeah. it's an emphasis on there. It's a trying to identify and um, reaffirm some craft values for judging within an institutional context that involves. Uh, legislators, members of the public trying to comply, judges trying to adjudicate cases, and... A focus on the system as a whole and competencies within,
0: within that system. Yes, and, yeah.
1: and emphasizing things like stare decisis, uh, letting uh, a legal decision stay the same over time, not overruling cases willy-nilly and this sort of thing. But being upfront about that. Bit, right, yeah, that, that's yeah. a value and you have a name for it and you yeah. can explain why it's a value, stability, reliance, etc. Um, so it's this sort of judicial craft movement That in a way, I think, steps in and tries to address the fact, as you say, um, you know, it's when you're very reliant on judges, judges better be very wise and very smart. Yeah. Is there a way to help with that? Well, yes, if you create a an understanding about and can enumerate the sort of craft values that judges ought to be able to um, strive to and accomplish, uh, that helps you with that uh, that task, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, well, I find that movement appealing. I do. I've always uh, kind of liked it, although I've never fully come to grips with, you know, all its details. Um, We had a a major proponent of it here for a long time, Jim Henderson, uh, who tried very hard to put that back on the map, but it doesn't um, – it is a little hard. I mean, someone needs to come up as a better spokesman than the original proponents were, I think, for that. Um, But it doesn't completely solve it. I mean, it's still – uh likes and how can you not like um the value of candor. Right. Um so you're still never going to be able to kind of game things the way you just you know the system naturally came to game them. Yeah. Um game this this rules because I don't think there's anything you can really do to solve the rules standards conflict. Well I so, think
0: so if if the problem is the if if we think and, and I'm not sure I agree with this either, but if we think that there is a a sufficiently large class of good rules at least potentially and mm-hmm. that our problem is that we want to we want an escape valve to allow for truly exceptional situations like the one that you, you mentioned of the, of the unfortunate woman who was who was relieved from buying the house and, and mm-hmm. we want to do this if we look in other instances we find perfectly good ways that that this is done so um you know presidential clemency and um and pardons and and you know in other other institutions do this, but they're they're acting based on their source of legitimacy, right so presidential pardons government uh, governor clemency, these kinds of exceptions to the law draw from the very source of legitimacy they have and and when you know when the president pardons at the very end of his or her term. Like that's when you get political attacks, and that's when you, it's called into question
1: because the legitimacy may not be there anymore. At least there are questions right. about it. But and, during normal periods, right. we might call them, right. uh, which is to say when the pardon power is not being used very much, <laughs> it, it doesn't undermine all of federal criminal law. The fa- the fact that the president can exercise pardons, yeah, and there's a
0: recognition this is a truly exceptional case, and and we're ne- the law is never going to be perfect, and here's the here's a right person to make this determination on grounds which you can see and, and respond to politically, put in a different kind of president. But when courts do this, and I do think courts need to do this in order to have an effective system of law, they need to recognize exceptional cases, their legitimacy comes from a different source, right? It comes from treating like cases alike, it comes from um, a, maybe a slightly more scholastic view of law, it comes from uh, uh, a sense of justice and impartiality, I mean you know all the tipi- you can rehearse all the different values that you think distinguish courts as an institution and and how you do that with candor in a way that reinforces whatever institutional values of judges you find that is a very tricky question right and it 's almost like acknowledging the exceptional nature of this case you know in front of me, acknowledging how it is very different than other cases and unlikely to repeat. Like those are the kinds of things which point to judicial values and the j- legitimacy of judicial exceptionalism, right? The reason I'm departing here is precisely because it is unlike all these other cases. I do treat like cases alike. I am coming to this in an impartial way, and it forces me to recognize that there is an exception. So I'm going to resort to this doctrine, which is rarely used, but is called for in this case. That that does seem to me to be a kind of logic of judicial exceptionalism, which would embrace candor and yet do do the job no uh
2: yes but i i i mean i have no real side on this i just uh, i my main point is this is a um an unsolvable dilemma mm. because the judges are human <laughs> and every time they uh you know misjudge on the side that goes against the rule, they're gonna erode that rule a little bit, um in a way that you can't quite get back. Um and you lose some of what you want from that rule. It's got costs. And there's nothing, you know, they're being human, of course you want their humanity in order to properly administer the exception, I mean to, to recognize why you need exceptions. You don't want robots who don't really understand what charity means. Um, On the other hand, uh, the judges aren't—you know—over time they're going to systematically undo some of those rules. Now, maybe you just have to come back with new rules once in a while and let the whole process start again. I don't know, but to me, it's it's, just—it's—it's a major dilemma of law. And I've been looking at this for a number of years, and I have yet to see a real solution to it. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I I, just see a gap before. Um, I think the paper that your paper is most consonant with in, in, in my experience is Carol Rose's crystals and mud. Yeah. In property law. And, and it has that sort of, you know, almost Nietzschean eternal return quality. Mm -hmm. Like we're, this, we're just going to have to keep living through this again and again and again, we're going to have to cycle through it. Uh, and, um, and it's regrettable in some way. Of course, um, you know, applying a rule where it doesn't really apply is also a, is also a, an error, right? You, you, you point to sort of refusing, uh, you know, failing to apply it where it actually would work fine. That's a mistake. Uh, uh, applying it where it really has no place. That's a mistake. Too. We talked
0: about this. We talked about um, this at, at the level of secondary rules with the um, King against Burwell case, right? Because the criticism I think that you and I share is that there was a resort to a secondary rule of interpretation, which was opportunistic. It, right. I, this is not to characterize the motives of anybody, but the right. way that it, it wasn't consonant with the way those rules. That was our criticism of King, right?
1: Well, well yeah, yeah, because the routine application of Chevron was well, not was even tr- taking. Yeah, but right, that's fine, it's yeah, just yeah. a very straightforward yeah, yeah, yeah. way to resolve the case. For, you don't have sure, to get sure. to a fancy like Chevron step negative one or whatever yeah. to uh, figure that out. But uh, but but yeah, the 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 sort of crystals and mud and and cycling. Uh, I mean, I I I, th- I think that's. Um, I think there is a sort of an era of inevitability, and in that sense, I guess you could call it tragic. Well, right? well it's <laughs> this—it's this sort of shortcoming that's that's uh, woven so deeply in you can't really get away but from.
0: But give, given the way you guys are talking about. The the problems of the individual judge, like the da- you know, we can't get out of it. The danger is the individual judge erodes the rules in, in a way that's not good because the judge is too focused, as it, as right. Emily says in the paper, like maybe too focused on the case in front of him or her. Yep. And is not able to take that global view in this in that sense is similar in situation to the individual, like the Joe who's driving by the sheep. Right. Right. Um, but but maybe a a practical move. <clears throat> My understanding is that uh, many equitable principles are seen as discretionary and therefore on appeal are subject to kind of abusive of discretion, right? So, so these equitable judgments are given looser appellate review than would be the application of rules. And in a way, I understand it. I mean, I can That's make arguments point. for it, but, but in a way it seems the exact opposite of the concern, right? That there should be more scrutiny of the exceptional than of the routine because there's less, because there's right. more skepticism of, of, right. you know, anyway,
1: but there's an The appellate
2: judge is one step removed from these facts. You know, the facts of this poor woman with the three kids and the uh, bone cancer that uh, can kind of be a little more dispassionate about it.
0: It, But it, it works both ways. I mean, there's no great way to do it. Um, but it does, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, to the extent that f- factual familiarity is what tells you that the thing is exceptional. I mean, it, maybe, if, if the cases are really exceptional, you could have Live evidence at the appellate level, like maybe you have to go to two different judges in order to really get out of the rule. I mean, you can imagine creative solutions that would would help you gain more confidence that an exception is truly warranted here and it won't it it won't have an unduly erosive quality on on the rules. This is, again, assuming we believe in rules and all that.
1: I think another thing that uh, so so well maybe two more things. So one is uh the the if if cycling is bound to occur, um that that leaves open the question how quickly do the does the cycle repeat. And I think it my sense is um that you would prefer cycles to go more slowly than more quickly just in the sense of the rule doing its good work for the longer period that it can do so Do, I, do, do is that am I right about what your intuition is? That um, we'd have. it'd be I mean, better that's to have hard longer. to gauge.
2: If you, if you have to have cycling, I suppose a balance would help. the The beauty of this equity system, which was six hundred years, um, was that you didn't really have to cycle because you really could have mm. both at once. Right. Um, if you don't have this, then you're right. You're going to have to cycle more, like Carol Rose describes. If you cycle, I'm not sure there is an answer that. Uh, you know, is more or less attractive to me about how long the cycle should be, uh, um, and I don't know if you know. There's a way. There's some tipping point we ought to be able to recognize when it's time to recycle.
1: Um, well, from so a, I don't know. sort of emer- as an emergent thing, uh, uh, I guess uh, the there again, I feel like legal process it, it, and its emphasis on. Uh, craft values that that I I think would lead to a slower cycle. All other things being equal, the cycle would move more slowly, mm-hmm. um, and it would look more to legislatures and agencies that are connected to those legislatures to give the 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 larger um, uh, the larger scale movements. Although it of could policy. Be, it could
0: be dialogic in the way that we talked about last week, right? The Cal- Calabresian dialogue way right i mean the the legislature could be prodded into action absolutely but but
1: the but the but the initiation of the the energy behind the larger moves would come from the politically accountable branches right right. um and that that would be part of the story of how long the cycle is and the texture of the cycle so
0: you're you're Um, skeptical of my idea that that judicial exceptionalism can proceed from sources of judicial legitimacy
1: Oh, I'm not. No, I, I. I'm not. I mean, it just think depends it, on how you craft the I argument. I think it absolutely it. can. I just yeah. think it as what I was thinking of as you were describing that technique. Yeah, is that that once again really puts an emphasis, uh, uh, as uh, Emily was saying before, really puts an emphasis on uh, the skill of the individual judge. I mean, b- because right. for every hand in Cardozo, there's a Frank and a Douglas. Um, who you don't who, like those judges? <laughs> it's not that... that I don't like them; it's that they write in very different styles, right? Yeah. If you go look at Jerome Frank, kind of creating the right of publicity out of whole cloth in this, uh, in this right. chewing gum case, the Halen Labs case. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a disaster. You, you it sort is. of are scratching your head, going, "What the heck, man?" And it's not like there weren't uh, privacy cases that had happened already that laid a fair bit of groundwork in a number of different directions, but the man is just a force of nature, so he comes in there and and just rolls around on the stuff for a while and then runs away. <laughs> and it's you're just going, what Sounds the, like oh my, my kind God. of judge. i can <laughs> And 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 you and I've told you before I know, yeah. Justice Douglas's patent opinions are just a complete mess. Um because he you know, patent law, which has been around in the United States since 1790 and before and has been around in the West since the 1500s. Right. This is not a guy who likes small motions. Right?
0: Do you know anybody else who's like doesn't know a whole lot about patent law in its history, but would like to do something dramatic with it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, as you've said many Douglas
0: times
2: Douglas is a great example. Douglas was a scary judge, uh, in my view.
1: Well, certainly he, along the dimensions we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just t- taking very large motions in very short periods of time.
2: We was a thoroughgoing realist, too.
1: Uh, that, is a, that is a true thing.
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, interesting to read is this. I don't know if you've ever read um, Joseph Hutchison. He's one of the original realists. I cite him somewhere. You uh, did cite
0: that in the paper. And I,
1: that's yeah, one he's I, he's, he's one I've not read. Yeah, yeah, me neither. I don't think I've ever read anything of his. Yeah.
2: Was he the he hunch guy? The, It was the theory of the, Harry Hutchison, and he wrote the theory of the hunch. Yeah, yeah. And he actually described this as his judicial method, that he'd scrutinize all the facts, and then he'd sit and contemplate until a hunch came to him about which way this case should go. And then he'd fill in the why. And this is what he said. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) He waited for the hunch.
1: Posner talks that way from time to time. About yep. about his sort of take yes. on things,
2: and Posner is, an, is is a realist in many ways.
0: It's a short uh, jump to that from the the slightly more grounded argument that that judges in a, in a world where they don't have perfect information or the ability to spend an infinite amount of time on any given case have to make right. good have to make good guesses about things. Right? That's just yeah. What, no, that's what and, we have and, to do. and
2: there's a lot of truth in that. But that may be one reason why we just can't have a system with no rules. Mm-hmm. Um, because the rules do provide, if if they have any meaning at all, if judges aren't treating them in a thoroughly realist way, um, they provide some check. They say, you know, think twice before you go with your hunch if the hunch is against the rule.
0: Of course, you know legislators make guesses and go on hunches, and then voters voters yeah voters go, yeah, and voters go oh, no. on <laughs> hunches about about legislators' hunches in the future, right? So it's hunches all the way down. I Wait, guess but I'm yeah, so, I'm
2: thinking more of common law. Yeah,
0: rules, of course, of course. Uh, Please
2: point- have. The, I, I I don't think terribly highly of legislators, but um, the common law rules have some quality of development over time and a little bit of consensus building as you go along the development of the rule uh they at least have that
1: i don't think judges are uh depending on the topic and and i think you can find examples of 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 all these phenomena but you know i wouldn't describe judges as being especially um unhappy about uh taking a a rule-like approach uh and and one thing i would point to uh is the success of the restatements um which aren't binding on anybody right until uh, right. judges adopt them which they do if we look back at the history of us state supreme courts uh in the 30s 40s 50s 60s um the restatement of torts for example extremely successful
0: yeah but they're chock full of standards and principles right they, they are they, they I mean, are this- yeah, but as they're...
2: soon as you hit something difficult, they bring in the word, uh, word unconscionability, <laughs> and then you know you're in trouble.
0: Yeah, they, uh, but or, but or, or even just unreasonable. People, yeah.
2: Many of them look for guidance, but not Joseph Hutchison. <laughs> he really thought his factual hunch um, was the right way to go. Yeah. Um, I don't know.
0: I don't know if there's anything that we definitely should say that would <laughs> elucidate, or that we haven't said yet. Um I feel like the next paper is yet to be written on this, and um, but but <laughs> sure. but boy, it opened my eyes to another dimension of the rule standards debate, another yep. dimension of the institutions debate. It brought it together in a really interesting way, and it was super fun to read, Emily. So I I well, appreciate thanks. your it was writing. It's kind of it. fun to
2: write, uh, yeah. but you guys have done a wonderful job with it. I, I'm surprised. I mean, to get pretty much complete understanding of of your paper from uh, <laughs> people who've read it is is yeah. is
0: unusual especially from especially for people like us
1: (laughs) (laughs) hey we try (laughs) we try we
2: we, do a good job
0: yeah so thank you so much and um i hope to talk to you next time
2: okay
3: Thanks. thanks thanks bye